good morning. Isn't it good to come together to worship in the morning, to sing songs in our hearts and minds to God? And we're getting our hearts ready for Easter. Hopefully you're looking forward to Easter in two weeks. And I want to challenge you to invite someone to come to our Easter service in two weeks at 930. Uh, you know, Easter, t Easter is a time where many people associate going to church on Easter. And more likely, if you invite somebody to come to church, they probably will take you up on it and come. So I encourage you to invite someone and bring some with you so they might hear the gospel too, or I might encourage them to come back to church or, or wherever they're at in their life. Let me ask you a question. What is it that grabs your attention? I mean, what is it in your life that causes you to stop in your tracks and really grabs your attention? We ask the same question of Jesus. What grabs Jesus' attention? What really stops him and grabs his attention? We want to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that will give an answer to that question. Because if we can answer that question, what, what, it, what is at the heart of Jesus? What does Jesus really care about and is at his heart? It helps us to understand who Jesus is and it helps us also understand what Jesus has for our lives and how do we live for him. We're going to continue in our series, Seeing Jesus Clearly. And if you have your Bibles, please open them to Mark chapter 10. And I want to read the entire passage. But as I'm reading this entire passage, I want you to remember the context that we're in. As we began this journey with Jesus in Mark chapter 8, that's where this series started. And uh, Jesus was ministering there at Bethsaida. And he's moving down from Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's coming down to the coast. And now he's in Jericho. And then he's eventually going to work his way on down to Jerusalem. And, and if you could divide the book of Mark into a three-act play, we have been spending our time in the second act is what we've been in. Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. In the first act, we're Mark chapters 1 through 7, where we see all the miracles that Jesus does, one right after another. And they draw people's attention to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And he's fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament as he's doing this. But then you get to Mark chapter 8, and act 2 begins, and the attention kind of shifts and he begins this journey now to Jerusalem to die. Ultimately, they go there, they go to the cross and die. But you find that this journey that he's been on has kind of changed, uh, where he has been there to do the miracles and present himself as Messiah has now changed. Now he's coming to his disciples and he's teaching them this concentration toward them and with the disciples to teach them more about faith, how to deepen their faith, and, and how to walk with Jesus is what he's trying to do in their, in their lives. So his concentration has shifted, and from Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, it shifted away from just presenting himself as Messiah. I want to read this passage. As we're reading this passage, we're going to see Jesus is there with his 12 disciples, along with a, a crowd. And let's read verses 46, beginning at verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. And what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, uh, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There's an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah that prophesied the coming of Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16, let me read it to you. 
says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. What Jesus was doing, his fulfillment of this prophecy right here, was to turn blindness into sight. Physically and spiritually, he's doing it. And it all began in Mark chapter 8. You remember the story where he came to a blind man in Mark chapter 8, and he came to the blind man and he touched him. But the blind man couldn't see. So he had to touch him a second time, and then he could see. And we asked the question, why did Jesus have to touch that blind man two times at that time? The answer to that question, not because the, of the blind man, it was because of the blind disciples. They didn't get it yet. He had touched them once. They recognized him as the Son of God, but they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand uh, why he came. They didn't understand what was going to happen in the future. So they needed to be touched again. And from that point on, what Jesus was doing, he was teaching his disciples how to deepen their faith, how to grow in their faith. And, and it's sandwiched in between the healing of two blind men that we see this great training time that Jesus gives his disciples right here. In Acts, I mean, Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And he, and he count comes the story of the second blind man that he's going to heal. The second blind man. And too often, I mean, over the years, I've told you many times, stop and take notice of Jesus and pay attention to what he's saying. In this passage, Jesus reverses it. He stops and pays attention to a blind man, a beggar on the side of the road, is what we see here. And can you imagine how this must have looked? Here comes Jesus, his 12 disciples, and he's coming with a large crowd, and they're moving along, and here's this blind man on the side of the road, and he's calling out for help. He's asking Jesus for help. And Jesus stopped, and he heals him. He doesn't touch him twice. The question is, why did Jesus stop in the first place? Why would he stop? There's all kinds of people calling out to Jesus. Why do you stop? The Bible tells us here, it was that this man's faith, was this man's faith? Jesus said, your faith has healed you. It is incumbent for us to then ask the question, what is saving faith? What is faith? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. We want to please God, right? I mean, hopefully everyone wants to please God. So what is that faith that it's talking about? There's a, as we read the book of James, we see that there's also a faith that is not saving faith. It says in James 2, 19, you believe that there's one God good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder, the Bible says. So you don't want to have that kind of faith, because that faith won't get you anywhere. So what is faith? When we look at faith, what really is faith? Well, faith is believing. The word faith, a noun, and the verb believe come from the same root word. And to have faith means you believe. To believe means you have faith. But faith in what? Two things. Faith in who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's God, and what Jesus did. That he died on the cross for our sins, and now whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins finds forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what saving faith is. That's saving faith. And Jesus said to this blind man, Bartimaeus, he says, go, your faith has healed you. That word, that word that's translated healed can also be translated salvation. Same word can be translated. So he says, go, your faith has saved you. Jesus said, it is your faith that has saved you. So he said, faith in Jesus, who he is, and what he did. That's what we're talking about. If you have your outline, if you don't have one, there's one right outside there on the ministry counter, outside in the foyer. I want to give you two aspects of saving faith this morning. The first one, saving faith recognizes there's a great need. There's a deep need. Saving faith recognizes there's a deep need. I don't know if you've ever been in the place of this 
a blind man, Bartimaeus, a guy that was desperate, desperate guy in the side of the road who recognizes he has a great need. So many times pride disguises a need and pride kind of hides the need and we deny the need because we have pride many times. But when you were blind, physically blind, in that day, as you were physically blind, you were considered low level. You couldn't get a job. You had no status. So you're like Barnabas. You're on the side of the road, and you're, you're just begging there, asking. And as they sat in there, people would go by. And sometimes people would go by, and they'd take advantage of him. Sometimes they would go by and make jokes out of him. Sometimes they might go by and, and put something in his cup or his hat, or, or maybe not. But he's there. Think about how he must have felt not productive. I'm here at the mercy of other people as they come by. Faith recognizes there's a deep need. So he cries out, Bartimaeus says. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus was a very popular name in the first century. So if someone who had said the name Jesus, many people would have turned their heads and said, oh yeah, you're talking to me. But he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus, no, said Jesus of Nazareth, what he said. Nazareth was about 60 miles away at that time. But he recognized that this was Jesus of Nazareth. just wasn't anyone. It was someone that was different. I, I don't have to remind you back then, they did not have the telephone. They did not have the internet. They did not have TV. They did not have radio. They didn't have social media. The word couldn't get out very fast. It was by word of mouth. So how could he have heard about this Jesus of Nazareth? Maybe it was because of that miracle in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus healed a man in Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. There was another blind man that Jesus healed there. And I can imagine when a blind man is healed, the word spreads like wildfire, especially among blind people. They take notice. What? A blind person was healed? And if you're blind, you're going to listen to that, right? Bartimaeus, he's on the side of the road, and he's sitting there, and he's desperate. Imagine him. He can't see. He's desperate. And yet there's something about him that we're going to learn to appreciate about Bartimaeus. And then the first thing, that this man had spiritual sight. He didn't have physical sight. He was physically blind, yet he spiritually he could see. And I'm going to prove that later on in the message, that spiritually he could see. There, there, here's a, many people believe that Bartimaeus uh, played a significant role in the early church as a church leader after this, because his name is mentioned along with his father. But what we have... Uh, right now, I want to talk to you just for a moment. I want to kind of change pace here. What our society too often says to people is self-sufficiency is being a virtue. They say that uh, it's the kind of highest virtue. And you heard people say that I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. You hear people say that. And I remember when I was a child and I would try to do something and someone would try to help me and say, I don't need your help. I can do this. I can do this all by myself. And maybe your children, you see them struggling with something and you go up and try to help them. He says, I don't need your help, Mom and Dad. I can do this by myself. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. But somehow along the way, as we were growing up, we started, pride started sitting in our hearts and minds, and we wouldn't ask for help. We said, you know, I don't need any help. I don't need anyone to help me do anything. We try to solve our own problems, and we do all those things ourselves. When many times we try to be our own therapist. We think, I've got all the answers. We try to fix ourselves. And if our self-medication won't work after we tried and tried and tried, then we might possibly go to the doctor. Is anybody with me? We wait. We try everything we can before we go to the doctor. It, it, it's rampant, but it's just a delusion. That's all it is. It's a delusion when we think that self-sufficiency breeds isolation. We think, I don't need anyone. I don't need anybody in my life. I can do everything all by myself. Every one of us needs people in our lives, don't we? Whether you realize it or not, we all need people. Even Steve Jobs. 
You've heard of Steve Jobs, right? He made a lot of money, and he needed people to build his business. And, and, and all of his money couldn't extend his death. He died at the age of 55 years old. Stephen Hawkins was another one. He died at the age of 76 years old, and many people considered him brilliant, brilliant. Yet with all of his brilliance, he needed a lot of people around him to help him function every day, didn't he? We need people. That's just the way we are. Suppose I have a birthday coming up, and I don't. It's further in, in the year. I have a birthday coming up, and my wife, Sheila, asked me. She says, we want to plan a birthday party with you and get all the children and their spouses and their grandchildren together. So we need to pick a day to have this date happen. And I say to my wife, I says, you know, I, I think I want to do something different this year, that I want to make my own birthday cake, and that would be just a shock to begin with. And plus, I want to celebrate it all by myself, all by my lonesome. That's wrong on many levels. The first is I'm trying to make my own cake. My wife would be in shock for me to do something like that for me to make my own cake. But we don't do that, do we? Nobody wants to do that. We're made for community. We're made we want to be around people. We like to be around people. Isolation is just an illusion that we made up in our mind. And many times, it's nothing more than pride. To think I can do it all by myself. I don't need anybody. And the problem is that we all need people. We need people around us. So we go along in this isolation many times, and then all of a sudden a problem hits, and we're lost. Because we're not invested, we're not made deposits in other people's lives, so we can make withdrawals in their, in their lives. And when problems hit, all of a sudden we say, where is everybody? Why isn't anybody helping me? Because we haven't invested in other people's lives. We haven't built those relationships because we've lived in isolation. Every one of us needs to be a part of a church. Every one of us needs to come and, and attend church and, and fellowship together. The Bible says, let us not give up meeting together as some of the habit of doing. We need fellowship. We need to meet together as a body, as a church. Within that church, we need to also be in community, like in small groups, involved in ministry. And I, I've made many of the friends I've made in churches through small groups or being uh, in a ministry with someone else. What I see happening here at Crossroads is everyone to be connected. Be connected in a small group, and I know it's hard to meet in small groups right now. Hopefully, we're going to be able to start them back in the fall. Be in a small group, or to be in a ministry serving somehow, someplace in the church, or be connected to an elder. I like to see every person in this church connected to an elder. So when that point in your life comes, and many times it does in our lives, where we need help, we need advice. And you're saying, I'm contemplating doing some things that I've counseled other people not to do, but I'm almost ready to do this because I don't know where to turn. And I need some advice. I need someone to go to. I need some godly advice that you are connected to someone in the church, that you can go and find that advice. And my question is, are you connected? Are you connected to an elder in the church? Are you connected to a ministry in the church? Are you connected in a small group in the church? See, our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is not emotional. Our greatest need is spiritually. We need to be spiritually fed. That's our greatest need. And so many people are watching life go by as they're on the side of the road, not engaged, not in the thing, engaged in the guy, in things of God, but they're doing their own life. And they're deluded in this self-sufficiency that I don't need anybody. I don't need anyone to help me. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Ecclesiastes, and it's written by Solomon. And Solomon talked about an event that's common to all. He said it's universal. He said it's death. And he says that every, every philosophy of life has to be kind of go through this test, the death experience. And he says if your philosophy of life that you have in your life can't stand up to the death experience and get you through the death experience, then it's not a philosophy of life that we should consider following 
We have to consider, am I ready for the death experience? Yet we go on thinking that day will never come in our lives. We, we think, boy, that's a long way off. And we don't know, do we? The reality is God didn't make it like this. God made this world without sin and where God and man would walk hand in hand together. That's the way he made it. But it all changed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? It affected everything. The mind of mankind, the, the, the lifespan of mankind, the, the, the heart of mankind. All of us know our hearts, that it's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, where it says our hearts are deceitful and just desperately wicked, what the Bible says. We know that. We try to clean ourselves up on the outside, and you know, so we look good. But we know our hearts. We know how deceptive and deceitful they can be many times. And something can set us off. And that reminds us of the broken world in which we live. This world is broken. And, and God said, the only solution is my son. And I'm going to give him over to you. I'm going to sacrifice my son that we might live together for eternity. And that's what God always wanted. That we would live together with God forever and ever. But what does mankind do? They ignore God's way. They ignore God's way through Jesus. And mankind keeps going along, deluded in their pride, thinking, I don't need anyone. I can get by in this life all by myself. I can solve my own problems. I can get through this. I don't need anybody. And I keep making my own decisions, doing my own thing. And, or, or they think, you know, I've got plenty of time left. I've got all the time I need. I've got all this time left. And no, that's thinking is wrong. What Bartimaeus is saying and what we're seeing in Scripture, God is saying just no. You're to come to God and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I can't do this by myself. I can't live this life by myself. We weren't made to. We weren't created to live it by ourselves. We weren't created to live it in isolation. We don't do well in isolation. You may think you do, but you don't. You don't. You're missing out on what God has for you in community. In community with God, in community with other people. We are to live that way. See, saving faith involves recognizing the deepest need. We all have a spiritual need. We all have that. We need that. We need to have that community with God and community with other people. The second aspect of saving faith, saving faith has tasted the deepest love, or, or saving faith understands the deepest love. Let's read a couple of those verses again in 47 through 49. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and, and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Let me stop there for a moment. Uh, these disciples, they had really good intentions. So Jesus is walking along, the 12 disciples are there. There's a large crowd with them. And here's a blind man crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples turn to this man who's crying out, I need help, I need help. Quiet, shh, quiet, stop it, stop it. Can you imagine that? We sometimes do that to our children, right? They're making a lot of noise, shh, be quiet. Sometimes we do it to our dogs or our animals, shh, be quiet. Will you stop that bark? Will you stop that? We do that, right? But they're saying it to a man here. They're actually telling the man, be quiet, stop speaking, shh, quiet. And then Jesus stops because he knows this man's faith. He stops right there, makes him stop right there. This man's calling out, and he stops. And Jesus says, call him, call him over to me. Now the disciples are saying, cheer up, come on, he wants to talk to you, come on over here. And look what happens in verse 49 and 50. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. I just want to stop there. I want to make another note about this. These disciples had good intentions. 
they're trying to protect Jesus. Everyone's trying to come to Jesus all the time, right? They're trying to protect him. Could I say this? If shepherds who need protected from the flock or shepherds who demand protection from their flock, it's not because the flock's too big or anything. It's because you have the wrong kind of shepherd. Shepherds should never need protection from their flock, should they? You want the shepherd and the sheep to be connected. And Jesus was trying to connect with this man who needed help, with this blind man. Let's read verse 51 and 52. He says, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. He immediately received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man simply said, you know, I, I, I want to be able to see. I mean, we wouldn't want to be able to see. I want to be able to see. And Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you or has saved you is what he's saying. When I looked at this passage, I believe there's more to Barnabas than meets the eye. And I mean, there's no pun intended, but there is. There's more to him than we can see here. <laughs> Some people kind of got that by me. <laughs> what is it about Barnabas that we look at? What is it about him that grabs the attention? It's his faith. This man had faith. I don't believe you can see it. There are two clues in the depths of his faith that we see here that Barnabas understood he had a God who loved him. And this is so, so important here. He understood that he had a God who loved him. The first clue, he said it twice. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. The son of David is very interesting. It tells me that this man, Bartimaeus, was a Jew, and he had knowledge of the Old Testament. And the knowledge, his knowledge of the Old Testament took him back to David, all the way back to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David wanted to build a house for God because they were worshiping God in a tabernacle or a tent. And he had plans to build a house for God. And God comes to David and said, No, David, you can't build me a house because I want to build you a house. And from your house and from your lineage is going to be one that sits on your throne, David, forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what he told him. So what happened? Every time there was a new king, every time there was a new king that came and they were going to be coronated, and people were wondering, is this the one? Is this really the one who's going to sit on our father's David's throne forever and ever and ever? Is he the one that's going to bring peace and righteousness and, and mercy and truth? They're all going to come together. Is he the one? Is this the one? It didn't take long before they realized this wasn't the one. Then a new king would come. Coronation, the oil poured over their head, and they would say, is this the one? Is he the one? That's going to sit on his father's David forever and ever and ever. And didn't take long. That's not the one. Another king. Is this the one? No, it wasn't. Another king. No. Another king. No. Finally, an Isaiah. Isaiah, eight centuries before Jesus came. He wrote in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and in chapter 35, he said this. The Spirit of God will rest on this one. He will come in such a way, and he says this. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf, death unstopped, deaf and stop. Then they will leap, lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And Jesus came and he did all that. He did all that. He performed all those miracles. And here's this blind man, eight centuries after this prophecy of Isaiah, he says, Jesus, son of David, he connected the dots. He connected the dots. And he says, that's the one. That's the one we've been waiting for. He actually says it. Jesus, son of David. He connects the dots. That's who he is. He's the one. He's the one that's going to sit on our father David's throne forever and ever and ever and ever. He's the one. He's the guy. He understood who he was. That's the first clue. This man had deep faith. The second clue is the second half of the sentence, what he said there. 
He says, have mercy on me. He said it twice. That's Old Testament language. It takes us back to Psalm uh, 57, verses 1 through 3, where he says, have mercy on me twice. Let me read it to you. The psalmist writes, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. Think about it. Bartimaeus knew about this Jesus, the one who was coming, which sat on the David's throne forever and ever. He knew it. He actually said, son of David. That's what he said to him. You are the son of David. He said, have mercy on me. So he understood the promises of Psalm 57. He understood what that meant. We said it twice, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So he, he said, I want to take, shadow, take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I rejoice in your faithfulness and your love. And you will send from heaven my redeemer, my deliverer. You will save me and you will rescue me. That's what he understood about God. Stand, kind of sitting there on the side of the road, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he's thinking to himself, this is it. He's finally come. And he connects the dots. And this man understands the scriptures. He has faith to understand in the scriptures of the Old Testament that he had God who loved him because he realized what the scriptures said. And this is so, so important because he had a God who loved him. And he knew that Jesus of Nazareth, he would respond to him because he had a God who loved him. And it's so important that we see that because he understood who God is and that God loved him, he says, if I cry out to him, he will respond. And Jesus did respond. He believed in God. I wonder how many times you've heard me say that God loves you. You've heard me say, I mean, you've heard it many other times. People say it, it, that God loves you. But the the question is, do you believe it? Do you really believe that God loves you? There's a promise in Scripture that tells us the truth in Scripture. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And we, we've got that memorized, and we know that verse. And say, oh, yes. But seriously, do you really believe that God loves you? Because there might be sometimes yourself, you say, I, I can't even love myself. So how can God love me? I don't even know how my wife or a husband or children, you put up with me. That God loves me? I mean, that God really loves me. Do you know there's nothing that you can do that's ever going to sever that love? That's ever going to destroy that love? That's ever going to diminish that love? There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Do you understand that? That he loves you. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter about you. He's committed to you and he loves you. He loves you. If I got a hunch that many of us, we know that theologically, we've heard it and you hear me saying it, oh yeah, I know this, but we've never locked into that experience part. We've never come to the point where we really believe it in our own hearts. We, we know it, and we can quote it, and oh, God loves me, but do we really feel it? Do we really say, yes, I understand, and I really believe that God loves me? Bartimaeus believed it. He believed it. That's why he cried out to God. And he said, God, have mercy on me. God have mercy, because he understood God loves me, even as I am, even as I am. He said, even as I am, I can't see. I'm blind. God loves me, no matter what. He loves me, and God's going to respond to me, and God did. May I jump ahead for a moment? Let me jump ahead for a minute. One day, there was a man on the cross who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
In other words, what he was saying, my God, my God, have mercy on me. Did God the Father have mercy on God the Son when he hung up on the cross? Let me say that again. Did God the Father have mercy on God the Son on the cross? No, he didn't. Not at all. There was no mercy shown to Jesus at all. He endured it all. The physical beatings, the spiritual beatings, for three hours he hung there in darkness, and the spiritual beatings came upon him. And God the Father had no mercy on his son on that cross. There was no mercy shown to him. He endured the full wrath of God on that cross for you and I. He endured all that the sin had to come bring at him. He endured it all. And because God gave him no mercy on that cross, God can give you and I mercy. Because he showed his son no mercy on the cross. And he endured it all for you and I. And because of that, God says, I can give you mercy. All the mercy you need. We cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. That's what we cry out every time. And God is more than glad to give his mercy to us. Because Jesus paid it all for us upon the cross. Jesus endured it. And God didn't give him mercy upon that cross. But now, because of Jesus, he can give us all the mercy that we need. Can I make application for this? Let me give you a couple points real quick as we close. The question is, do you have faith? Not just faith that you know about Jesus. Oh, I know the Easter story. Do you have saving faith, what I've been talking about? Do you know for sure that you have a relationship with God through Jesus? Do you really know that? That the moment you leave this body, you would be in the presence of the Lord. Do you know that for sure? You say, well, can you really know that? Yes, you can. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you and I to know for sure that we have eternal life. He wants us to know for sure that we are his children, that we have hope in eternity in heaven with him. He says, I don't want you to guess about this. I want you to know that you're my child. I want you to know that the hope that you have for eternity, for certainty, but we have to have saving faith. We have to have saving faith. Not any faith will do. It's saving faith, which means no pride, no self-sufficiency. No, God will pick up where I left off. I'm going to do my part, and God will do his part. No, no, we bring nothing to salvation. Jesus paid it all. He paid it in full price upon the cross, and all we have to do is accept what he did. We have nothing to offer God. But the Bible, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus— the Bible says that you have an appointment with God that you're not ready for. And one day you're going to stand before him. And all of Steve Jobs' money and all of Steve Hawkins' intelligence didn't prepare for that day, for that death experience. They weren't prepared for that day. Couldn't get them through it. It takes faith. It takes saving faith to get us through that. That's the only way we're going to get through that. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior yet, may I encourage you to give your heart in your life to Jesus today, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. That's the only way. It's more than intellectual accent. It's giving our whole being to Jesus. It's life-changing when we come and give our heart and mind to Jesus, say yes to him, that I understand, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, and I put my faith and trust in you. Nothing I bring matters. It's all what Jesus did for me upon the cross. And we say yes to him. Please, if you've never done that, do that today. If you have questions about that, come and see me. Let me ask you another question. What is it in your life that maybe you've propped up yourself into self-sufficiency? Where you say, I don't need any people. I don't need anyone in my life. I could do this all by myself. I don't know if you remember that old Simon and Garfunkel song. It's an old song. I am the rock. Uh, it's a very old song. It's probably before it in most of your days. 
But let me read a line of it. it says where it says, "I'm a rock, I'm an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I'm a rock. I'm an island. Those are the words of an empty person, isolated. We don't have to be isolated. God doesn't want us to be isolated. Let's give ourselves to community. Let's give our hearts and minds to Jesus that he might bless us, that so you and I might be a, a blessing to others. Let's thank God for his forgiveness of sins that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's thank him for that, for the mercy that he gives us and forgiveness that he offers us. And because he forgives us, we're able to offer forgiveness to other people and build this community that he wants us to do. Let's forgive others of their sins. Let's show mercy as God has shown us mercy. And let's not take God's mercy for granted. Well, let's come to him and, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We all need it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Well, let's come to God and say, God, have mercy on me. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we've done. God will forgive us our sins. He promised to do that. He promised to give us mercy because he didn't give his son mercy on the cross. He said, I can give you mercy. My son paid for your sins. He paid for all those things. So come and let's say, Jesus, have mercy on me. We all need it. We all need it. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, please do that today. That saving faith. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you say, boy, but I've been messing up. Just come and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. He promises to do that. He promises. Let's not take his mercy for granted, though. Okay? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come. We praise you and we thank you. But God, you are so good. You are so good to us, Lord. Lord, we passed in this world and it seems like we're just flying by. We missed so many things. We missed what's happening in our lives. So we're just trying to get through each day so focused on our our own circumstances that's right in front of our face and we're missing the bigger picture of life lord help us to see life through your eyes help us to stop being so self-focused and so isolated and so into our own lives that we're missing the bigger picture that you have for us lord help to open up our eyes and say god I, I, i'm not here for the purpose of serving my kingdom but i'm here for serving your kingdom Lord, I pray for that person who may not know Jesus Christ, their Savior. I pray for their soul that right now the Holy Spirit may convict them of their sin, their need of a Savior. And I pray they might put their faith and trust in you, Jesus. Lord, Lord, I pray for every one of us that we come before you and say, God, I, I can't live this life without you. I've tried. I try to live it on my own terms. I've tried to live it my way. And so now I yield my heart and mind to you, God, and ask for you to give me your mercy, your mercy that I need that I need every day of my life, that I'm not made to live this life on my own. I'm not made to live this life by myself. I'm not made to live this life in isolation. But I need you, God, and I need others. Open up our hearts and minds to that. Help us to step out of our comfort zone with you, God. Trust in you every step of the way. That we might become the people that you want us to be, building community, building those relationships making those deposits in other people's lives that we know that we can go back to them one day and trust them as friends and family, that they can help us when we're in need and we can do the same with them. So it help us become the people. As you were there, Lord, these last days of your life here on this earth, last weeks, that you were spending time equipping and training your disciples to deepen their faith, that, Lord, we would take heed to this. And we would learn from your teachings and our faith would go deeper to trust you more to understand you more because God we need you 
we need you so much. Lord, I pray for each person here that we draw close to you and say thank you for your mercy. That we never take it for granted. Lord, we praise you and we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.